If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 4. Um, also, I put the, the text on little half sheets of paper uh, on your chairs as well so you can have it um, in front of you. But uh, what we're going to do is we're continuing in a series on 1 Corinthians, and uh, today we're taking on chapter 4. Uh, and I wanted to invite my good friend, Jason Torrance, to come up here and read. Jason has been at Midtown longer than I have. Jason is better looking than I am, and uh, it, it is true. Way to lean into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Jason has been a part of the worship team here, and he, he can kind of do anything um, up there, uh, anything at all. So anyway, he's going to read 1 Corinthians 4. Uh, we're going to follow along, and then, and then, yeah, awesome, take it. Are you nervous? Me? Yeah. Uh, not really. Okay. I'm getting more nervous. You don't think? As time goes by. Yeah. It's a long passage. It is. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share this rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I'll find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Amen. Thank you, Jason. All right. It's a lot of information, and I'm going to boil it down for you in a minute. But I want to... Uh, 
ask you a question that's on the board here. Could you be living a lie right now and not even know it? That's what's happening with the Corinthian church. There's a movie. It's one of those movies that when I'm flipping through the channels on TV and it's on, I stop. How can you not stop? It's one of those kind of movies where any point along the way, it's a great film to pick up. And the movie I'm talking about is Castaway, starring Tom Hanks. An an amazing performance by Tom Hanks. There's one scene in this movie that just just sends my mind spinning. And that is, you're familiar with the movie, I presume he's a FedEx worker whose plane goes down over the ocean, he's the only survivor, washes up on a beach, ends up living stranded on an island for four years, and then is dramatically rescued and re-enters after being gone for four years the world that he left, that he, he never knew he would see again. Right after he gets rescued, They have this big reception for him, and he comes back, uh, FedEx is there, they're having this big press conference, and all this spread has been laid out for him of all this food that he's just, you know, he's he's had to forage for his own food, he's had to make his own shelter, and now he's back in in this context where everything that he needs is provided for him. And then there's this scene, after the parties have died down, the camera is panning across a hotel room, and you hear this click. And the light is going on and off and on and off. And it pans across and you see the corner of the bed begin to come into frame and the blankets are all messed up in the bed and then the bed is empty and then the camera keeps panning and there is Chuck Noland, the man who was rescued, laying on the floor of the hotel room next to the bed with his arm up like this, turning a lamp on and off. And I love that scene because what a picture of the way we do so much of life. That so much is there for us. And we don't take it for reasons that you can empathize with. I can, we can empathize with him, right? That he's been sleeping on a stone for four years and now he has this bed But there's also a part of me that wants to contend. Get in the bed. (laughs) Get in the bed. Enjoy it. You're rescued. You're safe. You have this now. Nobody's going to take it from you. This is your new reality, this rest that is being offered to you. And yet there's this conflict that's happening inside of him that he is wrestling with, I would submit to you, this battle of, of a deception inside of him that it can't be, that it can't be, that he actually has this. Where are you right now sleeping on a cold, hard floor when infinite comfort and rest is offered? Borrowing C.S. Lewis's language, that we are people who, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, have been offered so much, and yet, he describes us as often being half-hearted creatures. Think about that, half-hearted. Are you half-hearted in the way that you live, in the way that you're doing life, in the way that you're taking hold of the things that the Lord, by his mercy and grace, has said in 1 Corinthians 3, 
All things are yours in Christ. He describes us, Lewis describes us as being uh, children who go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what's being what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. I love that image because I think we do this. We, we do this. We get into this place where we can't really imagine what the full grace of Christ means. And of course, because it's so magnificent. But a lot of us, we just, we wrestle and we stop way short and we put all these things on ourselves that we need to, sort of do in order to earn the right to rest in the comfort and peace and warmth of that grace and that mercy. Do you do this? Is this just me? What we're talking about here is being deceived, is believing something that's not true. If you're a Christian, and I'm not presuming everybody here is a Christian, but if you are a Christian, what the Bible tells you is that you're right with God, not because of you, not because of anything that you've done, not because of your conduct, but because of what Christ has done, you are a full son with all the rights, a full daughter with all the rights of being his heir. But a lot of us live in a place that's not under the umbrella of that truth, but we're living a different message, a different gospel, which is not really good news, but is more of a message of, if I'm going to carry the name Christian, then doggone it, I'm going to at least earn the name Christian. I'm going to deserve the name Christian. And we're living a lie when we're doing this. These believers in Corinth were deceived. They were deceived in ways that I think we can resonate with. There were two primary deceptions that Paul's getting at in them that are in us. The first is that there's this deception of comparison, which we talked about last week. It's interesting when when, uh, Jason read this text, you see Paul using some language where he is invoking his right as an apostle, but also as their spiritual father in the faith which he talks about in verses 14 and 17, to correct them, to speak into their life a corrective word, to say, I'm writing these words because you are living a lie and you don't know it, and I am going to help clear up this truth for you. And I'm gonna do it because I'm already in your life. And the first thing that he's zeroing in on is this penchant for comparison, that there's these Apollos fans. Apollos was one of the pastors in Corinth. There's these Apollos fans who are looking at Paul and diminishing them as though he's somehow not as good or not as right or not as whatever as Apollos. That's probably a reference here to eloquence, that Apollos was known for being eloquent, that Paul was known for struggling with eloquence, and that there are believers in this church in Corinth who are looking at Paul and saying, you're not as valuable to us as Apollos because of what he can do and what you can't do. And we do that. We have people in our lives and we say, you're valuable to me because of what you can do, more so than this other person because they just don't do as much for me. And Paul says, you can judge me, but you're judging me falsely because it's not your place to even judge if I'm being faithful to what God has called me to do and to be. God is gonna be the one to do that. His issue isn't so much with the comparison that's happening, but with their their hearts. 
the hearts of the people and why they're doing what they're doing. But then there's also this deception of pride that's happening. And this one is searching for us because they're boasting in themselves. That's what's going on in, in, the, in those strange verses that Jason read where he was saying, we as apostles, we're weak, but you're strong. We're fools, you're wise. We're despised, you command honor. We're poor and hungry and naked and you're acting like kings. What Paul is saying there is he's, he's dishing on them. He's dishing on them. He's, he's holding up a mirror to their view of themselves. And he's saying, here's how you see yourselves and here's the reality for us. You see yourselves as wise and strong and like kings, you're patting yourselves on the back. You think that you're wonderful when our experience as your spiritual fathers, Paul, Apollos, and all the rest, has been we've been beaten, we've been hungry, we've been disrespected, we've been dishonored, we've been punished, we've been hated, we've been despised, and now you're getting to this place where you're starting to look at yourselves and saying, aren't we something? Aren't we something as a church? All right. Right here. That's chapter four. All right? Why does this matter to us? It matters to us because these believers in Corinth are behaving in a way that we, be- we behave to. We do it all the time. And that is that we're constantly looking around. How do I know I'm okay? How do I know I'm doing this right? This thing called life. How do I know I'm winning? Right? And Paul is saying, your, your framework for assessing and evaluating this is bogus. It's unloving. It's built on destroying the relationships around you and not building them up. They're boasting in things. And Paul says, what do you have that you didn't receive? That's what he says in verse seven. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did receive it? A guy named David Pryor made this comment. He said, the major point of these verses is the foolishness of boasting amongst people who owe everything to the grace of God. They can't take credit for any of the things that they're taking credit for. Where do you do this? Where do you feel like, I need to assess, I need to evaluate, I need to establish that there's value and worth here, that I'm doing okay? Where are these areas that you're boasting in that you really can't take credit for? And yet you feel like, I need this area of my life to be strong, and I need to make it strong. Think about it. I mean, your career. Can you take credit for your career? Can you look at your career and say, I did this, if it's strong? Can anybody do that? What do you have that you didn't receive? What about your reputation? Can you take credit for your reputation? For how people see you? You know, it's funny because you can't make people see you a certain way. But you can try. And so we try. And we try. And we try. And why? What is it that we need them to see in us? What is it that we need to know? Okay, when I leave this party, or I leave this concert, or I leave this church... 
the impression that I've given people is, is this. What's going on inside of us that we're doing that? What is it that we're needing? And how much comfort and peace are we receiving if we feel like we accomplished that end? There's your relationships. There's your behavior. How much credit can you take for your behavior? That I've got it, I do everything right. Do you? Do you really do everything right? Or are you doing what these believers in Corinth are saying? That they're saying, well, I do more right. (laughs) I do better than this person over here. I'm stronger. I'm less uh, high maintenance (laughs) than this person over here. Are you guys tracking with me? Because I'm not sure. I'm looking out here. I don't know how I'm doing right now. It's ironic, isn't it? Because I'm thinking, I hope I'm doing well because I have an afternoon to live with this sermon. (laughs) So the Lord is bringing his word to bear in my own life. We talked about last week, when we believe that we're the architects of our own value and worth, then we are on a path to exhaustion because we are constantly constantly trying to find how we compare to other people, hoping that we will rise above the average. And what Paul was talking about last week is you can't do that and love people well at the same time. You just can't. You can't live by comparison and love people well at the same time because the whole driving force in your life will be to try to figure out how to rise on the shoulders of others. And that's not loving, and it's not finding your identity in God, in who God says you are, but in how you stack up to other people around you. It becomes like a shell game that we're playing. You know, when you go to the stadiums, and they have it on the jumbotron, and the peanut goes under the baseball hat, and there's three baseball hats, and they start moving around, that that's what we're doing with our lives. We're trying to figure out how to keep things in motion, and keep people distracted, and keep people focused on the thing that we want them to be focused on, so that when it's done, they'll be standing and cheering because they believe that they're seeing the thing that you're wanting them to see. It's exhausting. It's an exhausting way to live. Paul, then, is writing this because they're believing this lie that their, that their identity is found up in this comparison and they've gotten to the point where they like how they're comparing to what's going on around them and they're proud of it even though everything that they have that's worth anything is something that's been given. And so Paul writes. Now why does he write? Why is he writing this chapter? Why is he writing this book? The reason he's doing this is because he's contending for them. Have you ever been contended for? Have you ever had anyone contend for you? That's what he's doing. He's calling a big time out and he's contending for them to live in the light of the truth of the gospel when everything in them is wanting to fight it and redefine what the gospel is. And he's saying no, 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 no. He's telling them not, and I love this, we, we, It went by probably pretty fast, but in verse 14, he tells us something really, really important. He says, I'm not writing this to shame you. Because that's strong language. Jason read it. It's strong language that he's writing here. He says, I'm not writing this to shame you. I'm not writing this to squish you. I'm not writing this to make you feel horrible. I'm not writing this so that you'll close this chapter and leave with this resolve to do better. 
He says, I'm writing this to admonish you, to call you out of this deception into this place where truth is now what is reigning and ruling over your relationships and your understanding of the gospel and your understanding of who you are. He's wanting them to move from the cold, hard floor of comparison to the peace and rest of the finished work of Christ on their behalf. He's calling them, stop it. Stop sleeping on the floor when the bed is right there. Stop sleeping on the floor when the bed is right there. The gospel is beautiful. It tells you already who you are in Christ and what you're worth. Why are you trying to define that for yourselves based on how you compare? And where are you getting some sense that you're doing okay? That is in Christ alone. He's contending for them. Have you ever had anyone contend for you? I have. I have people, I have men in my life right now who are contending for me. My wife has contended for me. I've had mentors in the past who have contended for me. The men in my life who are contending for me right now, I'm going to tell you a little bit of what that looks like because I want you to understand what I mean. I'm a person who struggles to be emotionally present in the moment I'm in. I'm a person who, if something's going on inside of me emotionally, Two days from now, I'll have a pretty good handle on what I was feeling two days earlier. Now you're with me. Everybody's nodding. I have men in my life who are saying, we want you to be in the emotionally present in the moment now. We want you to know what's going on in your heart now. And so they contend for me. What does that look like? It looks like when I get glazed over or I'm doodling in a meeting, for them to say, you're doodling in a meeting or are you with me right now in this moment? They're contending for me. Why? Not because they're saying do better, do better, do better but because when I'm a million miles away emotionally from what's happening right now, I'm living a lie and don't even know it. And they're contending, live in an honest place right now, all the time, live there. Here's the thing. I want to learn life lessons. And you want to learn life lessons. But here's why I want to learn life lessons. Because I have a pulpit. I have a music stand, but I have, I, have, I have a pulpit. And if I can go learn a life lesson, and I can work it in as an application in a sermon, and come and tell all of you about it, I don't have to learn that lesson anymore. I already got it. I put it together, put it on paper, and then I gave it away. And now what? I'm not weak, I'm strong. I'm not foolish, I'm wise. Do you see how it happens? Do you see how the Corinthians get there? Do you see how we get there? Is we say, all right, I want to perform. I want to learn the life lessons. I want to take those life lessons. I want to apply those life lessons. I want to give them away. And that's how I know I'm doing okay. But the gospel says, move beyond learning lessons. 
Stop approaching a life of faith as the business of learning lessons. As if the bed is not there yet. As if the lamp on the stand, the light in the darkness, is something that is yet to come but is not here. As though I am still just stranded and shipwrecked all by myself and the only thing that will save me is me. It's exhausting because it's a lie. It's a lie. And so Paul is contending for them and for us to understand that the story is already written. The ending is already eternally set. And that grace is already abundant. What do you have that you didn't receive? What do you need that you don't already have in the perfect, all-sufficient work of Christ? In Christ, you don't need to prove yourself. And that's what the bedrock foundation of what Paul's saying. In Christ, you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to prove yourself. If you're in Christ, you don't have to prove yourself. You don't. And if that's the case, what if then the challenges that the Lord brings into my life, I don't hear them as a proclamation of shame, but as an admonishing call to rest in the deeper love of Christ? What if in these life lessons I don't see myself as an object of scorn, but as a beloved child of God that he's giving me something beautiful and not just chewing me out? What if when the Lord uses his word or one of his people to contend for you, what if your first goal isn't to show as quickly as you can how well you've learned the lesson? but instead is to explore the reaches and the depth of where and why and how your heart is being deceived. That you're moving past life lessons into a place where you're saying, all right, it's not about me just learning the right lesson and giving the right answer, but what if what God is doing is he's changing me? What if that's what he's doing? If he's changing me, that he's moving me from the cold, hard floor of comparison and pride to the comfort of the bed that is already set and already made and already mine. What if that's the story of the gospel? What if that's what Christ is doing when he calls us out, when he admonishes us? It is. It is. And it's not to shame us, but it's to call us deeper into his love. So we have to abandon comparison and pride because it's a lie. It will not give us what we think it will give us. And so we move in to the Lord's table this morning. And one of the wonderful things about the gospel is that it's not, a, it's not an exercise in being clever to try to figure out how the Lord's table ties in to any part of his word because every part of his word is about our need and God's provision for redemption. And we have this in the Lord's table. And what this does is it calls us week after week 
after week, month after month, year after year, to come to something that is, perhaps for some of us, frustratingly simple. Really, you want me to take a little sip of grape juice and a little piece of bread and have some encounter with Christ? Are you too sophisticated for that if that's what Christ says to do? I mean, what is it in my heart that says I'd rather rise up to something else? He calls us to a table that is confoundingly simple, so basic, and says come and receive what this table reminds you of and proclaims. That you cannot find favor and rest with God through comparison or through pride or through effort. You can't, you can't make God like you by your performance and by your trying. You cannot impress God with the lessons that you learn and how quickly you then take them to others to teach them. Instead, you receive everything. What do you have that you did not receive? What we receive in Christ is his life in place of our life, his death in place of our death, and his eternal reign as co-heirs with him. And so we come to this table and we kneel. And I would venture to say, I doubt we kneel much. Do you kneel much? Are there many occasions in your life where you kneel? We do here which is not a boast about Midtown's practice of the Lord's Supper, but is an observation to the heart to say, avail yourself of what the Lord might be teaching you even in the act of kneeling at this table this morning. This table is given for people whose faith is in Christ, um, which is not intended to be a way of, of uh, embarrassing anybody, but when Christ gave this table, he, he gave specific instruction. He said, do this in remembrance of me and what I've done. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is talking. We're going to get there. Paul is talking to this church who have all these messed up practices of coming to the Lord's table. Some people are getting drunk when they come to the Lord's table. And again, Paul's calling a time out and saying love is supposed to be the prevailing idea when you come to commune together in the presence of Christ. And when you do this, you remember what he's done and then you also proclaim his death until he comes again. That's why it's a Christian table because we're remembering what Christ has done and we're proclaiming that that is what we believe, that we believe that he lived and died in our place and that he rose again and that we are co-heirs with him forever, that God looks at me and sees his righteousness, that I am wrapped up in what he has done. We're saying this is all my hope and peace is Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so we come to the table and we kneel and we partake of something that is so simple and so childlike and so foundational and basic. And we've been doing it for thousands of years this way. And it's an invitation for our hearts to stop and to think about what it means to be wrapped up in the love of Christ. So if you're not a believer, that doesn't mean that you can't commune with Christ this morning just means that perhaps the way for you to commune with Christ this morning is to ask somebody around you to pray, to pray with you. 
the way we do communion here is we'll, uh, we don't dismiss by rows. It's, it's a little bit of organized chaos, which is nice. Um, but we'll, I'll pray in a minute and the worship team will come up. And, and as you're ready, you come and you just sort of kneel around the table here. Um, if you're with people, uh, you can come up together and go together. If you see somebody who looks like they're by themselves and you want to just invite them along, it is communion. We're communing together. So there is that. And, and, and you just feel free to just serve each other. Just with the bread, this is the body of Christ, which is for you. With the cup, this is the blood of Christ, which is for you. You can pray for each other as you do this. Um, But we want it to be an unhurried time for you to reflect and to meditate on what Christ has done and to live in the truth of what he's done. So let me pray, and then we will come and receive the Lord's table today. Father, thank you for... For all these places in your word where you take people who want to complicate or assess and evaluate by comparison and you slow us down to very simple um, practices of observing what you have already done. Father, I pray as we come to your table this morning that we would be reminded of the sufficiency of what these elements represent, that you have lived and died in our place and that you have given your righteousness to those whose faith is in you in such a way that we have nothing that we have to prove. We don't have to prove ourselves anymore. Uh, Father, would you, would you meet us in this time of worship? Uh, would you engage our hearts? Would you show us not just life lessons, but would you show us how you're transforming us? Would you bring us into this moment of communion with you um, that we would revel in your presence? Father, thank you for the comfort and the abundance that you bring in your grace. Uh, forgive us for the places where we boast, for the places where we compare And Lord, call us again this morning to a place of humility and honest dependence upon you as we come to this table. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray, and for your glory. Amen and amen.